Finley rips a single into left, bringing up Al Kaline. Pee Wee is a gentleman that everybody around Detroit, and I guess all over the country, happy to see in the series after he waited 16 years. Yes. You can't keep a bullet for a fellow like this. I asked him today, I said, Al, how old are you? And he said, Pee Wee, I'm 33. And that makes me about 17 or 18 when he first came up. of the PBA today. This is Ron Collins, General Manager of the Yellow Springs Nine, and as uh, as newly always, always newly, as we took a we took two cycles to go off on separate uh, on our separate ways, but now I have Ted Schmidt, the General Manager of Nobody, uh, here with me today to reconnect and get the string going again. Uh, Ted, so always again, does that work? As again, always, always. again. Yeah. Anyway, we're here. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're here. We're here. We're here. We're weird. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and we'll we'll just leave it set there. <laughs> so uh, we are have now officially moved into August, getting down into that last run to the trade deadline. Uh, we'll do just a real quick scan of a couple of uh, key occurrences here. I think David Nabarro of Vancouver. Um, had his 2,500th hit. Um, definitely a a fun player to have had in the league for quite a while. He's getting to the end of his career. What are what are your thoughts, Ted, around David Nabarro? I think if uh, if Tyler Simmons just popped in to see how things were going, he might shed a tear for David Nabarro. I mean, this is a guy who was just a cornerstone of those monster Jacksonville teams in the the mid 30s, and you know looked looked for the first half of his career, just, you know, surefire inner circle hall of famer and just really kind of started to erode in his late twenties, even um, And I got into the league at 19. So it's, he had a good long run, but just eroded in his late twenties. And then really in his thirties has just provided little to no value. And, you know, he always had a profile of somebody that that could happen to the, the biggest thing being that he always struck out a lot. And he never walked very much. And so as soon as he lost his, you know, just utterly elite uh, bat-to-ball skills, um, he was going to lose a big big portion of his value. And sure enough, that's what hap- that's what's happened. I still think, I think he has a strong Hall of Fame case. He's going to end up with 500 home runs. I don't know that he gets to 3,000 hits. He's been abysmal this year. It's, it's, a, it's always a little disheartening uh, how many of these players that, have been so great and we see oh they got to this milestone and you look at the year that they're having while they do it and you just kind of go oh yeah. <laughs> so you know yeah, I, he was he was just a scintillating superstar during the early jacksonville uh time periods in um in a personal pet peeve of mine since jacksonville took both of my landis rings back <laughs> in the day but yeah he's 34 years old he's He's uh, not had a solid year since at least age 29-ish. Uh, maybe his 30-year-old year, you could argue, was, yeah, I mean, it was okay as a 30-year-old. Yeah. So he's just kind of fallen off the table. But what is so interesting there is he's at 61 war right this minute. He was at that, 63 before the season. 
Yeah, he was 63 before the season. And, um, you know, there's uh, it makes me wonder how long he'll stick around and how much damage that will do to his argument. If he retired after this season, I'd put him in the Hall of Fame. You know, 60 is kind of the low end of what I'd like to see in there, but it's not unreasonable. He's, you know, if you look at all the shiny baubles next to his picture in OTP, it tells you how important this guy was. Um, he was absolutely just one of the best players in the league for, you know, the first seven, eight years he was around. The I think the titles and the being on Jacksonville that whole time, I think that matters. If you took this exact same player and you took away all those shiny postseason baubles and he had been on eight or nine different teams with the exact same stats, I don't know that you put him in. You know, it, it's it's an interesting case. I I hope for better things over the next couple of years for David Navarro. Yeah, I'd actually have to go and look at uh, Randy's stuff around the Hall of Fame because the one thing in his favor also is his as a third baseman, I think third basemen are not particularly prevalent inside the Hall of Fame. So if you look, put him up against third baseman, I'm talking out of school because I have not actually done this yet, but my guess is he scores pretty high on the third base Hall of Fame list. So that may work for him also. Well, he does, but like the reason that third baseman is so sparsely populated in the Hall of Fame is that we keep not putting guys like David Nabaru in. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's the sort of, we're creating, you know, we're creating the own problem, creating the own problem. We're creating our own problem. You know, I remember oh, yeah. there was an argument. There were people that were saying that Boogie Eisenhower didn't belong in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if you remember that, but like when he retired, there was this question about, you know, I, I, me or Rex was like, oh, that's a surefire Hall of Famer. And a bunch of people were like, oh, I don't know. And they're like, are you kidding me? He's a third <laughs> baseman with 76 war and a career 127 OPS plus and a career OPS of 835. At third base, we just don't have 400 home run third. We just don't have that many. So while I agree that's book that no, I'm sorry, I'm still upset about people saying they didn't belong <laughs> in the Hall of Fame. While I agree yeah. that Naboru will probably stack up quite nicely. I There is some sort of thing with third, and this happens in real life too, I think, in, in real life baseball. Um, third base is a weak position, so. Yeah, it could well be. And um, I guess uh, moving on a little bit, a little a tiny fun fact from some of our other conversations. I don't know if you noticed, but San Fernando's uh, 17-year-old pitcher, Juan Ho Park, was suspended after throwing at a hitter. So the, the kids got some moxie. Well, he, not um, only is he suspended, but I think somebody went after him, right? Like, who's the big man who went after the 17-year-old? That's the part <laughs> I want to see. The five foot 11, 175-pound. You know, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, either, either there's somebody out there that I'm a little disgusted with because they – it all depends on how much Juan Ho Park really threw at the guy, right? Like, if, if Park – absolutely drilled the guy and some was like i don't care if this guy's 17 year old he's a little shit and he's gonna get what's coming to him i'm actually okay with that like like that's fine if this was like a kind of inside pitch or you know something that got away and hit a guy and like big strong man couldn't take it and had to go beat up a 17 year old that let a pitch get away you know it's it's i depending on which one of that is it's totally two different stories right so, there you go 
Yep. I, I, uh, I had to chuckle about that. That was fun. Yeah, what, um, what I want to talk a little bit right? about Ernest McBride's fractured hand. Before I do that, I've got two little quick injury notes to, to put in. You know, I mean, what was what was the Vegas line on Buckland and Orozco both getting hurt on the same sim? Um, you know, somebody had to have bet on that. There's no question about it. So there's got to be a, you know, a guy wandering around with a stack full of cash right now. Buckland's out for three months and Orozco's out for four months. I mean, who figure? Go figure. <laughs> well, the, right there, there's two lines to talk about, right? There's the same day one and the sometime during the season, right? So. Yes. If that guy hedged his bets and took both of those, I don't, you know, does he, did he make as much money? Yeah, um, it's like, the daily money? like if, if, does Vegas, like, you know, get your money if they both get hurt? If they, was the bet that they, you know, like one of them survives the season without injury? Yeah, I mean, that's, that would be the interesting question. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, betting on horse, having grown up in Louisville, betting on horses, right? You bet win, play, show, daily double, exactas, you know, you can go down the line. But definitely somebody who bet on Buckland or and Roscoe had probably, you know, 50 to 1, 100 to 1 odds that both of them would be out in the same sim. That would be a, that'd be a good daily double to hit. Uh, the other one that I just thought was interesting is uh, Charlotte's Emilio Brazzini. I don't know if you noticed, he, the news note came out that he threw 16 strikeouts uh, early in the sim, and then the next game he had to leave with a bad back. So. I just thought that was uh, either irony or something about the game that uh, says, you know, don't don't go over and above. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. Well, but, it was a 116 pitch effort, you know, the, yeah. the one before. So it's not like he did it. That wasn't a that wasn't a low work 16 strikeouts. It wasn't a super high work 16 strikeouts. But you know, I don't know that I would be letting a 24 year old guy that you know, looks like one of the good players in my franchise going forward, be, be throwing that number of pitches on a regular basis. I think you're just kind of asking for problems. Yeah, and I, I am on your side there, especially since Charlotte is not well, it, uh, going anywhere this right, year. Right, year so. that doesn't matter, right? Absolutely. Right. Uh, but the big injury that I did want to spend some time talking about is Hawaii's Ernest McBride fractured his hand. He's out eight weeks essentially until the playoffs. Uh, theoretically, without a setback, he should be back for the playoffs. The guy is a beast. The guy is having a solid year. He's a, what, a 393 Woba, I think. Hawaii is living off of being the top offense in the league. Um, what does this do? What does this do to Hawaii? What's your thoughts on the impact of Ernest McBride? Well, it hurts, right? <laughs> if I'm going to say, it's hard to say really if I was Hawaii, I would actually be more concerned about him recovering than what it would do to me right now. I don't want him to come back with diminished ability. Sometimes, most of the time, guys can make it through a fractured hand and, and do okay, but sometimes they, they lose a little bit of ratings from it. I just would hate to see that happen because he has a chance to, to really be something special for a good long time. I think they're probably okay this year. They do have that problem of having Long Beach right on their heels here, but I don't think that they will finish anywhere outside of the top two in that in that division. You know, San Fernando's fallen back somewhat. Seattle really seems to be hitting the skids. Everybody else is too far behind to make up any ground. The Heartland's still a bloodbath, so you guys are going to beat up on each other enough to not make the wild card race, you know, get out of hand. I think right now being in the Pacific is an advantage from a ease of gaining wins standpoint. 
So this might cost them the division, but I don't think it will cost them the playoffs. And the you know it looks like McBride could be back by the time the playoffs start. So I think they'll be okay. Um, it's I as I said, I'd be much more worried about him than I would be about the record. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, and and I do think um, that that causes you know the impact of being able to needing to play in the Gahagan round rather than having a buy into the double day is, I mean, that's a, that's a serious impact. You know, it's not anything to be discounted, but I don't see them dropping out of the playoffs unless they lose another player that would cause some problems. I do actually wonder, I don't have any information on it whatsoever, but I do actually wonder whether when he comes back with a hand injury, will that be harder for them to deal with? Will that cause a short-term performance problem? And I put it that way because I know that for me, especially with the big pitcher injuries, I will often see a guy come back and take a month or three to seem like he gets his consistency back. Uh, so I do think there is a reasonable chance that even if McBride comes back, that he may be diminished in the postseason, which could wind up being problematic. Yeah, it's I, uh, it's a good question, and it'd be interesting to know what the game code actually is regarding these injuries. Do they have the in- players actually perform differently depending on the type of injury, uh, body part involved? Um, what the real life expectations for players that come back with certain injuries are, be it a, you know, immediately back at full strength versus, you know, hitters with hand injuries often do take a little bit to kind of get things going, especially when they have pain. Um, you know, the idea of, yes, you're healed, you will do fine, you are strong enough to play, you are not going to do any further damage, but they still have pain. And sometimes that affects a player's ability to mentally approach the game. And then even after the pain, you know, res- uh, resolves, they've picked up some bad habits or they've got that block that they have to get through. Obviously, they're not, the game's not going to go so in depth as to, you know, simulate all of those factors, but you do wonder if they've, if they've made some attempt to kind of fudge that into performance when players return. I, I don't know. It's, it's yeah. a good question. And I, I don't know that it is, is done that way, but at the same time, I also don't know that it isn't. And the, software analytical person in me says that would not be very hard to code in. So um, one of my, one of the things that I admire about Marcus is that if it doesn't, if it's not very hard to code in, he will not be against putting all sorts of interesting things in there. So the idea that he'll have two months worth of in quotes, rust to knock off, whatever that means. Right. And then on top of that, would there also be a derating of, you know, a, rating short-term rating uh, issue around just nagging pain you know that's a in real life one would think that a hitter with a hand injury would take a couple of weeks of playing to get comfortable again unless there's just zero pain whatsoever well and that's the narrative that you hear quite often and i feel like it's borne out in the stats but those things are always so hard to to truly know if you're if there's if it's just a narrative uh, right. You know, we've got confirmation bias going on. I do remember a year, I can't remember which one it was, that Albert Pujols broke his hand with 
you know, a month or some weeks left in the season or whatever. And, you know, it was one of those, oh, no, here we go into the playoffs. He's going to miss the first round. And he was just back in three weeks and just absolutely raked with yep. with a broken hand. So, you know, I, you know, it's maybe, maybe players are, maybe this isn't an issue. And we all just remember the ones where it is and we use that as an excuse. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, so. you know, the other real life situation is every person's biology and nervous system is different. Yep. Um, so maybe Albert Pujols came back and actually had no pain and everything was fine. Maybe, um, there's a guy whose name is escaping me now, uh, who definitely had some problems. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, <laughs> you get the you idea. Know. Well, let me uh, turn the conversation now to uh, probably the big thing that's been going on in the league here over the past uh, summer two, and that is trades. I think to use my professional uh, terminology here, there have been, I think, 1.72 quadrillion trades over the past two sims. So, and I'm going to ask you about one or two of them in particular. But before I ask you about one or two in particular, maybe give me a minute or two of your thinking. Why now? Uh, we're more in kind of the late July time trade. Uh, this seems to have been quite a rash of trades from several different teams. What What do you think is going on there? Well, I mean, this is the time of year I feel when most people are getting pretty confident about what they have. I would argue that that should happen sooner. But it doesn't, and this is about the time of year when most people start to feel a sense of, you know, I can make a run at this or I'm out of it. The sellers are definitely sellers at this point. The buyers are definitely buyers at this point. And I, this is, I, I feel pretty comfortable stating that, you know, about a month before our actual in-game de- trade deadline is usually when we start to see the, the big volume of trades. And mm-hmm. this is probably pretty... Um, normal. Now, individually for teams, why now? Uh, you know, maybe the same answer. Maybe there's a little bit more confounding parts for certain teams. But in general, I think that's the reason we see them at this time. Yeah, I asked that question because, and I caught you a little bit cold on it, I think. Um, but the I've been thinking about this for the past, in dip, bits and pieces the past day or two, and it um, riffing off of some of our conversations with the idea of, you know, why you wait until the trade deadline to make a deal. Um, it does seem to me that it is not unusual for us to see, maybe not quite this volume, but to see some trade deadline like trades happening more in the June, early, I'm sorry, uh, late July kind of time period rather than the late August time period. And I'm wondering what's your, let me throw out a supposition and let me hear what you have to say. I think that sometimes to make some detailed trade deadline trades, you oftentimes as a human being need a day or three to negotiate and work through things and figure things out. So by definition, a day or three or four is two sims, that's two weeks worth of time. If you start doing that in the mid-August time period, then you're feeling rushed. Whereas I think that there's a natural human tendency to just want a little more time, which leads more people to make more trades in this late July, early August time period than necessarily flat up against the deadline. Thoughts? I can see that argument. I think that if that's the case, this is a subconscious process. Um, I don't know that... Many of us are so thoughtful or considering in our approach to how long trading takes that they would be doing that 
on purpose, at least in a large group, or maybe I, I don't trade a lot. So maybe everyone has come around to that realization and that is the case. I do feel like there are always a number of people that have these big trade deadline blocks and then it's this, I can't get anything going. And it's absolutely what you're saying. It's well, people are busy <laughs> and you know, the work, you're trying to get a trade done in 24 hours and, and honestly and that's just not going to happen that often yeah it's hard to make a it's hard to pull the trigger on this big edgy deal that gets thrown in your lap four hours before the trade deadline and you have to make a decision right then usually those kinds of decisions for me are no because i just don't have enough time to unless it's just so obvious <laughs> so obviously good for me uh those kind of deals are they, they don't hit my psychology well, so it probably depends on each individual person. Uh, let me jump straight into it. Uh, there are too many trades. We could do a five-hour trade podcast, and maybe someday we should try to do that. But let me ask you a couple of uh, just kind of a one-shotter. The whole Edmonton, the, the thing that I found most interesting about all of the Edmonton deals, uh, and I believe you've actually made some comments on this on the forum, but I haven't read them, so I'm interested Posen she versus Rocky Allen. What's your take on on that swap for Edmonton? So yeah, um, I don't like it, and I traded for Posen she, and I really like Posen she, or at least I used to. And I think that thus far in their careers, it is clear that um, Posen she has been the better player. I think timing wise for Edmonton, this is an odd odd move. Just the quick version, Post and She has been replacement level this year. He has had some little bits of erosion from each of his ratings that that might just be kind of fluctuating around because he was a bumper. So he might have just been barely into the six range, barely into the seven range. And he may have just lost that little bit there. But when you combine that with a bad performance, it really makes me wonder if he's just just going to start lumping. You know, if he's just one of those early, early death players you know, he is 28 now, and I think that, you know, Rocky Allen's had a better year so far. Post and she is more expensive. Um, the only upside I see to this for Edmonton is that they weren't going to have a center fielder next year, and now they do. And I don't know how much Rocky Allen was asking for, but maybe it was considerably more than $12 million or longer. But I would be very frightened if I was Edmonton with this deal. I could, Post and she could fall apart in front of him. And my impression with players when they have gotten this far through a season with these, with this kind of bad performance is that they generally don't just flip a switch and go back to the player they used to be. He might pick it up a little bit, but I, you know, he's a five win guy last year and almost a five win guy the year before that. This is just a remarkable flop. So, you know, maybe Edmonton's brilliantly buying low, but I would also be very scared. That wasn't short. Yeah. The thing that struck me the most about it was the finances of it. And Postin she's twelve million dollars out into his. How, how old is Postin she? He's twenty eight, so that only covers him for twenty nine and thirty. Yeah, at twelve million dollars, I did Rocky Allen is just a tad younger and is a better fielder. Yeah, I, I just I, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I it depends, I guess, on Sacramento whether they can. Um, if Sacramento can wrap up Rocky Allen for a little bit less than that, then that's probably a pretty good, pretty good deal for them. Edmonton, Edmonton has some financial things coming on, I think. And so I was a little surprised to see them take a $12 million 
question mark. It could work out really well for for Edmonton, but it just seemed like an interesting time to make that swap. I felt like a lot of Edmonton's deals were moving the the uh, deck chairs around a little bit, but where the rubber hits the road on whether is whether Posen she comes back to at least that you've got to get at least three war out of post and she and he may he may do that but i admit i'm a little bit angsty about it so i was interested in that uh the other thing that i am interested in i had some conversation about uh with uh joe letterer and chad nason on our three strikes um i am intrigued as a heartland guy what you thought in particular of the two deals that brought players into the Heartland, uh, Omaha adding uh, Gonzalez in their bullpen and Nashville adding Mendoza into their outfielder. Uh, number one, what do you think about those two? And number two, which one do you think is the most, which one should I worry about the most in the Heartland? Yeah, well, let me take a look. Um, one thing I'd like to say about the last little bit of a trade, I've been bothered by Rocky Allen's collection of names for a little while, and I just now figured out why. His first name is a nickname. And then his nickname is a nickname. So he's Rocky, quote, Rusty Allen. And that just really bothers me. And that's really all I have to say. I just don't like it. So Omaha, I, I really like their Raul Gonzalez pickup for them. They needed some bullpen help. They've, uh, Niles has done some, some good things in promoting some guys out of his minors. Um, you know, Clulo, we, we cursed him. We just broke Clulo's remarkable season. Um, and then, you know, Lima has not been very good as a starter for a little while. And so he promoted some guys, shifted some things around, but he really needed to pick up a bullpen arm, um, especially with moving. Oh, I forget the guy's name. Horio Hayashi Hoshiro. It's just me being, being a Westerner and not being able to remember Japanese names. Who is that guy? Hayashi. Norio Hayashi was a great bullpen arm for him, but he was forced to move him into the rotation, which I think was the right thing to do. But then he needed help. So he goes and gets Gonzalez. I think that's a great move. You know, Adam Neal is Adam Neal. Um, he has some left-handed outfield bats. So, you know, Neal fits in in a role there. As far as the players he gave up, you know, uh, Pedro Mendoza is interesting. He has not had a whole lot of, um, he's not had a whole, whole lot of big league time, which I find kind of strange. You know, he's, he's pretty much developed, and he looks like he could be a useful player in some places. Um, but Omaha absolutely didn't need him. And then, you know, Noguchi is just kind of one of those, you know, okay, he's a catcher kind of guys. And the same thing, like Jose Montero is, you know, just kind of a backup infielder. So I think this is a really just nice deal to get, you know, a very solid young reliever that'll help Omaha a lot. And really all they gave up was Pedro Mendoza, who has some upside, looks like a solid starter um, in the platoon, but they didn't need him. So I, I think that's a great move for, for Omaha. There you and go. Then, Would you, well, Pedro Mendoza in, wound up. Uh, yeah, and he didn't stay in Las yeah. Vegas very long, right? Uh, wrecked immediately. Uh, wound up in his, in the Heartlands uh, Nashville club. Right. Which I also thought was um, a really nice placement. Right? Nashville has been using Jose Machado, uh, one of my old nine favorites. And Jose Machado had a really nice year last year, but has, again, 
he's one of those guys, he's like a whack-a-mole, right? He pops up once every three or four years with this great big nice season and then seems to disappear. And so he disappeared. I thought Chad adding Pedro Mendoza, uh, you know, see a problem, fix a problem. Yeah, I kind of labor on that. That's a really good fix. Um, Just going to briefly go through the parts he gave up. You know, Tinfu Lugano looks like a usable third baseman. It's not a whole lot, but Rex will get some value out of him. Santillian, you know, I kind of a DH, really, and not good enough to really care about. And then, you know, Ivan Ruiz is a little old for where his pitches are developed, but nice player. And I think, you know, looking at Chad's going, you know, I'm in a heated division race, improve my team now. This guy isn't doing me a whole lot of good right now. Like, I think this is the right move. And again, you know, wrecked just adds another strong farm piece there. So um, overall, you know, just another good solid trade. Was this a three-team deal? Like, were these separate um, trades, or was this a... Yeah, they were separate trades. Well, I guess you could argue it's a three-team deal. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it was, it was done as a three-team well, deal. I, I think, you know, I, I have a better grip on Omaha's bullpen needs than I do Nashville's offensive needs. You know, they have a pretty strong offense. Um, they were getting next to nothing out of Machado. It's tough to say which which team this helps more. My thought is that Omaha is going to get the bigger impact out of this simply because they were in kind of a borderline situation for making the playoffs, whereas Nashville was pretty... Nashville's got a wild card spot, right? Some things would have to go pretty badly for... Yep. Now that I've said that, I'm so sorry, Chad. Um, <laughs> but things would have to be, go pretty badly for the Bluebirds to not make the playoffs, whereas Omaha... You know, it's kind of had been teetering on that edge, although playing, you know, just lights out recently since they kind of started moving the arms around. So I, I, yeah. I think this is a bigger impact for Omaha than, but it's largely based upon, you know, not necessarily flat win total, but what that win total means. But I, the, I think these are both really, really good moves uh, for all, actually for all three teams involved. This is just a nice, good set of good GMs making good trades. Yeah, I can definitely see that uh, rating the or ranking of the order Omaha and Nashville specifically because Omaha is in a little bit more tenuous situation and needed the help more. That sounds reasonable to me. My The one thing that I will also riff off of just a little bit before we actually started the recording of this particular podcast. We had some conversation about, you know, how do you analyze trades and how much do you uh, incorporate the, I'll call it skill set or the mindset of the GM in different things. Uh, you mentioned uh, Carlos Santillian. Uh, Randy and I had some Slack conversation about him. Uh, in a normal situation, I would put Santillian as kind of a, eh, you know, that'll be interesting. Assuming that he develops properly, he's in, you know, he's still in the minors. He's got a year or two to go. He is in the exact right slot because Matt Rechtenwald will use his skill set in the exact way to to soak the most value out of him. He is an awfully interesting little platoon player, and he is the kind of guy that I, especially in the early 30s, late 20s through early 30s, I would throw this kind of guy onto my roster and just 
let him get his 150 at bats against you know right-handed pitching, 150, 180 at bats against right-handed pitching, and um, you know he'll give me a war. So I I like that pickup for Las Vegas because I expect that Matt will use him that way again, assuming he finishes his complete development because he is not done. He's 19. Yes, his number his ratings look like they are pretty well fleshed out, but he's on. He probably will not increase his potentials but he will get better for the next two years because his ratings will grow into those is my frame of right. reference. Like if he just crossed the seven bar, but as he gets that more AVK, maybe that contact versus right becomes an eight. Yeah. I just don't know. Yeah. Right. So th that's a, it is uh Santillian is a, is to me the most intriguing prospect of all of the ones that went through there, because I just don't know what he's going to wind up being. Uh, well, but... you also get interested in the tiny edge cases. Right. Like, yes. uh, what can I squeeze out of this guy? You know, the thing with well, Santillian, the other thing is you've mentioned this before. Santillian has a good chance of being better than complete garbage, nothing. And as you're retooling and rebuilding, you actually don't want to tank your win total to nothing. You want to squeeze out all of the little advantage that you can while you're coming back up. And you're absolutely right. And then he's a guy that you could maybe find some small fit for and get some value out of. Yeah. And I may be underselling him a little bit. Maybe he gets 300 at-bats for me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's why I say, uh, yes, I like the edge cases, and I like to think about it how I would use them. I also think Matt will use him in the way I would, which is different, right? Not everyone will play <laughs> will play their players in the same way that Matt will. Uh, but people should watch people like Matt. Uh, other GMs should watch people like Matt as they use players like this um, because – uh, he is, uh, as I put it, both, I think, on Slack and earlier on, he is the kind of guy who I actually hate overall ratings for because he, if you use him right, he is a much better than 40 well, the uh, other, overall rating. The other thing, the other problem with overall ratings, and I, we touched on this briefly when we were talking a while ago, but maybe I'll try to find it and link to it somewhere, um, maybe in the show notes or something. We'll should start having show notes. That'll just make more go. work for us. But... Um, <laughs> Potential ratings do not properly take splits into account. So the game looks at Carlos Santillian and says, if this guy is played against a normal distribution of left-handed right and right-handed pitchers, what will his outcome be? I'm giving that for his potential rating. And if you play Carlos Santillian against left-handed pitchers, he will be a negative war player. That is so true. that's one of the reasons his potential is at 40. And a while back, I did some tinkering where I would take a guy that looked like Carlos Santillian and I would change all of his verse left ratings to match his verse right ratings and then see what the potential would be. And then I would change all of them to be kind of league average and see what the potential would be. And I was trying to figure out how much the, and it's a very crappy study, but it's worth taking a look at because it gives you an idea of if I were only to play Carlos Santillian against right-handed pitchers, what would the game call his potential? Because they wouldn't call yeah. it 40. Yeah, it would be great to go back and find that because that was a very useful that that question of how do how does OOTP develop its overall rating? I mean, one of the reasons why overall ratings stink so much is that that's actually a pretty complex question. Right. <laughs> how do you how do you decide this is a platoon player, not a platoon player, etc.? 
um, is a and what's the value of a platoon player? Yeah, it, is very very hard to do. So I don't really mean to rag on out of the park so much as rag on the whole concept of an overall of overall ratings, right? Because every person needs to be able to look at the components and figure out what they think that player's value is. Um, and overall ratings become a crutch that I don't like, but that's just me and my personality. Um, no, I agree with you. I think that the takeaway from overall ratings is that it's a math problem and there's a bunch of stuff that got added up to give you that number, but yeah. you need to, but that's really the only use of it. And you can see lots of ways in which you could utilize a player. It's, it's not just related to platoons and splits, but especially with platoons and splits um, and see that like the overall rating is not nearly important than what yeah. their split rating would be. Do you have anything else to talk about on trades before I go on to another uh, topic real quick? I've got one more topic. No, I think we can go on. There's, there's so many trades that we would be here forever. I do plan on um, doing a little bit more trade analysis on some of these individual moves, and then I'll, Charlotte made a bunch of deals, Good. so I'll try to get something together on them. But uh, to yeah. go into each of those during this time, we would, we would be here for the rest of everyone's life. There you go. So let me throw out uh, the last topic that I had in mind and that is um, when I was flying solo last time, I put out an episode called Not Dead Yet. And I just kind of brushed over this team a little bit. And that is Phoenix, because I wanted to focus on Boise at the time. And I still like Boise's situation. But Phoenix is really surprising to me. And uh, I don't quite understand what's going on there. So I wanted to have a little bit of a bounce back and forth between us, right? They, are, they were picked by the media guide to come in seventh in the frontier. And I don't know that that was a highly controversial pick uh, before it was all said and done with Don Smith out. They have had a huge July. And in July, I was looking at it trying to say, well, did they just play nobody, right? But depending on whether you consider Mexico City a contender or not, they were either eight and six against contenders or 12 and six against contenders in July. So no, it wasn't just that they suddenly ran up against Nobody's. Pedro Guzman is a true star at this stage. Angel Di Castillo is having a resurgent year, but not so far off that you'd go, well, that would never happen. They did trade uh, Purcell uh, about two months ago for three interesting parts, but then Don Smith came back and they got him signed to a longer extension. So what do you think is going on with Phoenix? Are they real in your mind? Do they have a real shot? They're only two games out of a wild card. Do they have a real shot at making it? Well, I think the the key takeaway is that Purcell was clearly holding them back, right? That was the big problem. <laughs> um, yeah, they had to get that guy out. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, it is interesting they, how they much of a shot Johnson in the team. arm a team can get from one player, right? So you shouldn't be able to take a team that was bad to this point and put Don Smith on it and suddenly – have them be good. Um, it doesn't work that way, except for the strange times when it works that way. Yeah, so no, I, odd, I don't. I don't know. Odd fact: they led the Johnson League in home runs in July with 50 home runs. So that's not a Don Smith thing. That's well, that's a that's a Sean Marco thing. So yeah. if you look at the trademark of um, Sean Marco teams, it's power, and it's always been power. This is actually a surprisingly low power team uh, for him you know there's only like five guys with power over nine actually it's not even that many i think guzman might be the only guy with nine power 
on that team. And I would argue, you know, Marco has given this impression recently through his wonderful team news is that he is disinterested in his team currently. And I think that's probably true because um, it's not hitting a billion home runs. And when his team doesn't do that, he just doesn't care except for this month. I would say that I, I don't have a lot of confidence in this team. And that is largely because they went on that big run by hitting a bunch of home runs. And I imagine as the weather cools down, that will go away to some degree. Um, yeah, that's an interesting idea. So there are, there seems to be a pattern in OTP that if you build a team a certain way, um, you can become very weather dependent. And there's not just one way and one set of weather, but they're really you know, and, and it would be interesting. I don't know they're doing any, I'm sure someone has, but I haven't read the relevant baseball literature on team construction versus weather in months of the season. I just, I did just don't see enough here. I, mean, I really don't. Um, particularly the pitching is just so not good that I, I just can't see them holding it together. But hey, you know what? Go, go Jamie Mercado and Cisco Morales and, Squeak into the playoffs one last time and take all the credit. Yeah, I you never the, know. The most important question about Phoenix is: uh, Is Cisco Morales making a Hall of Fame case? <laughs> Will those uh, those '30s Crusaders end up with three Hall of Fame starters? And the answer is, is probably not. But I don't know. Do you put a do you put a 200 win, 60 WAR, 3.84 ERA guy into the Hall of Fame? I don't know. That's an interesting question. You know, that gets that gets into the idea of counting stats. You know, two hundred is two hundred wins good enough? In a sabermetrically inclined world, you don't care so much about wins. Uh but do you care about them for career numbers versus season numbers, right? A guy who wins uh twenty games in a year is a generally a pretty good pitcher. A guy who has 200 wins for his career, but in California or anywhere has never won 20 games. I don't know. What do you, how do you uh, equate that? Personally, he's probably not no, I, a I think Hall of Famer for me. I think he's right? Hall of Very, Very, Very Good. But that's... Yeah, and I, I can see that too. One of the interesting things that I was digging around in is, you know, you look at, we we talked about Pythagorean theorem, uh, Pythagorean records a couple of episodes ago by the uh, Phoenix is down at like what minus 13 or minus 14 go by month though and you've got April they were plus one June they were plus one July they're plus 19 it's only May they were minus 35 in May that's where they're and if you go back and look at that there was one series with Calgary where they were like down 20. They got bludgeoned in Calgary. <laughs> so yeah, I look at their ratings and I go, eh, they're okay. But then I look at their performances and they may actually be a better dark horse than Boise. Um, I can't, uh, I still like Boise quite a bit. I, I think they're underperforming, but I, I keep looking at Phoenix and I can't see anything that just disqualifies them. No, I can't either, but I also just can't see anything that that qualifies them. You know, like, it, it, I can't see either one. Like, 
you don't look at them and just go, oh yeah, that seems terrible. Um, like and should have a losing record, but you also don't, I, I think they are a 500 team. I mean, I think that's just what they are. And with the variable nature of baseball, a 500 team can make the playoffs or it could have a massively losing record. So I don't know. They're interesting. No, no idea. I, uh, <laughs> who knows? Well, I know, I know you are not a guy who likes to, um, make moves to win now, make moves to, uh, that hurt your team over the long haul. I really liked at the time that they made the trade, the Purcell trade, because the parts that they brought in were uh, useful parts for the future. And it seemed to me that Purcell was probably not going to be long in Phoenix one way or the other. But you look back on it now and you go, well, would a Purcell in this bullpen actually change the flavor of what's going to happen in the future? That's a... That's another interesting what if, you know, if we run time forward another two months and we find Phoenix misses the playoffs by one game, would that change your assessment of the Purcell, of the decision to trade Purcell? No, not really, because you you work with what you have at the time you have it. There was a, when I was talking, um, after I posted the article about Edmonton, Aaron, Edmonton's trades, Aaron commented that he thought I was nuts to count out Edmonton in the last podcast. You know, they're a plus, they've got a plus 80 run differential, which I think is, you know, fourth or so. Let me, a third. That's the third best run differential in the entire Johnson. And, you know, I, I was counting them out largely based upon just the fact that they'd kind of dug a hole and had some injuries, but then they got, you know, really hot or started playing to their potential. Um, but, my answer, so I, you know, I probably spoke too soon there, but my answer to Aaron is that I probably count out teams too soon. Um, when I think about contenders, I don't think about squeaking to a wild card spot. I think about, I know that I'm either going to win my division or I have a division winner that won't win the division because somebody else is really, really good. Mm-hmm. And... I think those are the ways that you have to think about your team and make decisions on what you should do if you want to have any sort of sustained success. When you make a decision to try to improve your team, to try to squeak into um, a wildcard spot, I don't think that you can confidently say that your team is even a winning team. There's so much variance in baseball. I would argue that anybody who says that they can pinpoint the true talent win total of their team within a handful of wins is a liar or ignorant of the way anything works. Um, My error bars for how good I think my team win is, is usually somewhere in the seven to eight win in either direction range. And so if you're trying to make a decision as to whether to buy or sell with a team that's kind of where your error, where the middle of your error bar range, your 14 to 15 win total error bar range is right at 500. You don't know if your team's any good or bad. So the idea that's, you know, when we're saying count them out or a contender, those are probably different words, right? A contender is different than somebody that might squeak into the playoffs. So I need, probably need to work on tightening up my vocabulary a little bit. But I think you get, you start to get in the, and, and Edmonton's definitely a, a real contender, but you get to that point in the season 
where you say, are they so good that they can overcome playing like a mediocre team and they've got these injuries? Um, and I know I've kind of ran far afield here talking about Edmonton, but then the point is, is when I have those kind of questions about Edmonton making it, who I know is a 90-ish win team, <laughs> when you start talking about what a guy, what a team that's probably about a 500 team that's either playing above their head or below their head should do or should have done, I don't know. I don't know. And if anybody says that they know for certain that they're wrong, they don't know. Or maybe I have an overstated opinion of my own ability to rate baseball teams and everyone's way better at this than I am. But I don't think everyone is. I'm sure that some people are. But, you know, short answer summary. Nah, if they thought trading Purcell was the right thing to do at that time and they got a good deal, I don't think anybody in their right mind would argue that Phoenix is so good that that was a wrong move. Yeah. No, I, I tend to agree with you with that assessment. That's how I would probably answer it. I think it was the right move to make when they made it. And yeah, they may get to the end of the year and regret it, or they might make a move to try to patch things up here. We'll, we'll see what Sean does. Um, I like your assessment of Sean's interest <laughs> waxing and waning, depending on the number of home runs his team is hitting. I think that fits <laughs> at least the... Uh, the uh, stereotype uh, flavor of, of Sean's perspective on things. But, um, you know, the interest, other thing that I wanted to riff on, we've talked about it a little bit before, but maybe it'll be more specific here. You know, you, you made a comment in there about what's good for sustained winning. And I look at Phoenix and I've talked about Jacksonville a couple of different times. These are two very different looking teams too. Phoenix hasn't made the playoffs for what, five years, six years, I can't remember what it is. Um, they are not a super young team, and their salary structure is kind of interesting. Um, have to kind of, you know, you talk about Morales and Mikado. The question ultimately is, does the – one of the questions I have when I have this kind of middling team coming up the curve – how much risk am I willing to take to my overall plan? Do I have any wiggle room there? And does just making the playoffs actually uh, give me a boost or not? Jacksonville is a very young team. They've got lots of guys kind of lined up, and it seems to me like they're on a development curve. And if they make, if they can make the playoff, that might actually boost them quite a bit if they miss the playoffs as long as they don't uh, sacrifice a whole bunch of parts then you know you know dang they missed the playoffs but I don't think that it was in Greg's mindset that he was going to be a playoff team this year so he's kind of playing with house money whereas Phoenix it almost feels like they might be and I haven't dug down deep into their system yet but it almost seems like they might be in a one uh, one and done, two and done situation. Um, so at some level, you might think from a risk standpoint, it's worth it to take my shot now while I'm close. Don't really know. I'm kind of making that up. But um, those are some of the questions that were going through my mind when I was looking at Phoenix. Yeah, they're good questions. I can tell you that, you know, you asked that question of how much, what's your threshold for taking on risk to to make the playoffs um, when it deviates from your plan. I can tell you my, my answer to that because I, me is none. I have no threshold for that. There's, or my, I shouldn't say that 
there, I will take on no risk. My threshold is absurdly high. I do not deviate from the plan. Um, <laughs> and I could be, I'm not saying that I'm right about that. I would need to do a more detailed analysis of the amount of money that you can make by making the playoffs in one year over what you would normally make anyway and how much percentage increase in revenue that you would need to make that worthwhile based upon the number of players that you gave up and how much, you know, surplus value. Yeah. I'm not going to do all that. There's money in fan interest. There's money in fan interest. Fan right. interest is more valuable than money when well, it comes yes, right yes. down to the, it. The same idea, right? That common the revenue stream. How much does making the playoffs that year add to your future revenue stream? And what's the weight of that against the surplus value of what you gave up to do it? And I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. And if I had a better idea of that, maybe I would take a little bit more risk. But I think that unless you are making those kinds of calculations, you should not be taking the risk for one year. Uh, unless unless you just want to make the playoffs. And you don't give a crap if it screws you for two or three seasons later. That's fine, too. Whatever you enjoy doing doesn't make a difference to me. Um in fact, take all the risk you want, and when I get back in the league, I will reap the benefits of the players. <laughs> but, um, you know, everybody can do this the way they want to. I just don't, I do not get so excited about being in the playoffs that I would give up what I think is any number of wins in the future to do it, because I know that someday I can build a team that makes the playoff most years. So why would I sacrifice that to, to get there now? I'll get there eventually. There you go. Alrighty, well, I appreciate your uh, thoughts on that. It was it was one of those things I was digging through last night while I was watching mindless television, and and uh, um, I had I admit to have just not paid much attention to Phoenix, and so when they popped up in my not dead yet moment, it struck me that I need to spend some more time on them. So uh, well, that was fun. Yeah, no, it isn't. It depends on where you put the bar, right? Like. When you look at, I mean, technically Sacramento is not dead yet, but I mean they're kind of dead. So it, it's they're deadish. Yeah, <laughs> mostly dead. So only mostly dead. That's such a great movie. Anyway, um, yeah, they're so, eight and a half games out of the playoff spot, which is out of the playoffs, which is pretty tough. Um, it depends really on how far. It wouldn't shock me to see San Fernando and or Seattle fall down that far. It would be unlikely, but it wouldn't shock me. It would shock me to see Sacramento uh, pass Chicago. I just right. don't see that happening. And so then you've got to look at either uh, Hawaii or Yellow Springs to completely de- discombobulate or Nashville, Long Beach, Omaha, and or Louisville, you've got to have at least two of those guys probably fall off. <laughs> and I just don't, I don't see that. So anyway, there is all of that. But I would, not, I would not suggest that Shoeless not bluff or, or Blave. I'm still just going to keep shoehorning in movie references. <laughs> Once I start, I don't stop. <laughs> well then we should stop this now so that so that the rest of the world can can be spared i've only seen like four movies i'm not like a good movie reference person i i know like three yeah we should stop <laughs> well if you've only seen a few then you actually know all of the all of the lines and therefore you can always come up. it's like uh you know reading the bible to anything you can pull off something and use that phrase for whatever you want to use it for and it works out just fine 
Yeah, it would be fun to see um, a study of the most quotable movie. Like, I can, how, what movie can get you through the most of your most life? Like, I have a friend who can communicate through only Simpsons quotes, and it's pretty <laughs> remarkable um, and entertaining. And I just wonder if there's like one movie that you could grab and you could get through a decent portion of your life with it. There you go. I'm not sure which one that would be for me, but I think for my daughter it would be The Princess Bride. Yeah. But it's a good one. There you go. All righty. Well, Ted, this has been fun. Um, hope you have a great rest of the day. We'll look forward to getting together again Wednesday and keeping our, hopefully, knock on wood, keep our schedule going. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Alrighty. You've been listening to the BBA Today, a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day. Music is Bold Statement, available at fesleyandstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.